Welcome once again to Radio En Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill in Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioenvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 12 years at radioenvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio En Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio En Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio En Vivo is supported by the NC State University Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES Center. The GES Center works to integrate scientific knowledge and public values, shaping the futures of biotechnology. Positioned at the nexus of science and technology, social sciences, and humanities, the center engages in collaborative research, education, and engagement by generating knowledge and fostering balanced and inclusive dialogue around emerging genetic engineering technologies and its products. Learn more by visiting the GES Center website, research.ncsu.edu slash GES, and follow them on Twitter at at GESCenterNCSU. Finally, Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics, Incorporated, of Research Triangle Park. GeneCentric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at GeneCentric.com. WCOM and Radio on Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. One of the great mysteries in human biology is undoubtedly sleep. What is sleep? 
Why do we seem to absolutely need it? Does it serve a distinct physiological or neurological function? My guest on Radio In Vivo this week, Dr. Graham Deering, is a young neurobiologist who is unraveling potential answers to some of these enduring questions. Graham is an assistant professor at UNC Chapel Hill in the Department of Cell Biology and Physiology. He received his bachelor's and doctorate degrees in biochemistry at the University of British Columbia and served his postdoc at Johns Hopkins University from 2011 to 2017. Just last year, he joined the faculty at UNC and established his first independent research laboratory. Also in 2017, he was a finalist for the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, which we will hear more about. Graham Deering, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Thank you for having me on the program, Ernie. It's a pleasure to be here. We always like to hear about the journeys scientists have taken to get where they are today. I'm specifically anxious to hear your story, since you've really just embarked on your career as an independent researcher. I've had some time lately to reflect on my path to get here, and it's a bit mysterious to me, to be honest, the answer. I feel a bit like a a bloodhound dog following a scent with my nose to the ground. Um, But uh, when I started university, I thought I was going to go into physics. turns out I'm actually very bad at physics, and I very quickly gravitated towards biology, and in particular biochemistry. Uh, I'm really fascinated by the molecules that make up life, and it's incredible to me that you can assemble a fistful of DNA, RNA, and proteins and make something as wonderful as a cell, and then from there make something as incredible as a human. Uh, And really, uh, I've been also gravitated towards neuroscience. Um, And it's amazing, actually, that our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviors, our lives actually do come from these molecules in our brain that allow biology to exist. So... um one of the parts I was curious about, Graham, was how it feels to go from longtime student, uh, which uh, I guess for many years you were what we would call a professional student, uh, pursuing your studies, uh, to n- new professor. How has that change in role affected you? Yeah, you're right. It's it's a long time uh, as a student. Uh, grad school is a curious blend of of school and work. Uh, but then even as a postdoc, uh, we're still considered trainees, and we have mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the most profound things about transitioning from the student life and, and training into my own, uh, starting my own lab is the profound uh, feeling of having no boss and no mentor. Uh, basically, the buck stops with me when, I, when it's decisions to make about what experiments to do, what areas to focus on. There's no authority to appeal to. I have to make those decisions. And that's been very uh, satisfying and also terrifying. I'm sure. Well, I'm sure. Not, as not to say that I don't still have uh, access to mentors and experienced people to help me. Yeah, I was about to say that. I, I mean, that, that's quite a distinguished department that you have joined. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, there are deeply experienced, uh, you know, uh, faculty people that will give you a helping hand if you need it. Absolutely. Um, what are your teaching responsibilities going to be? Right now, the teaching responsibilities are pretty light. They, the department is very careful to protect the time of the junior people, give them the time they need to set up the lab, recruit the people, and start the experiments. But um, my primary teaching responsibilities are going to be for the grad school, uh, teaching 
in the physiology classes and neuroscience classes you know, for the incoming graduate students. I see. Okay. Uh, well, specifically, Graham, what, what brought you here to UNC? Uh, how, how, did that, how did that all work out? And we're glad to have you, by the way. <laughs> so I, um, I grew up in Vancouver and did my training, uh, first training there, and then moved to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and mm-hmm. then now I'm here at UNC. So I've been making a steady path uh, east and south. And um, one of the amazing things about science is actually how, uh, how many people move around and how global it is. So um, I never would have predicted I would come here. Uh, and um, when you're looking for, for a faculty position, it's typical people would apply broadly all over. So I really didn't know where I would land when I started looking for my own independent position. Uh, but this area is really exciting to be in. The great wealth of science in the triangle. Um, and uh, our department at UNC is also really uh, very supportive for the junior people and a great place to do research. Um, I'm also part of a scientist couple. My partner's also a scientist, so we were looking for not one job but two. And uh, UNC was the place for both of us. We both found excellent positions, and that's really satisfying. Yeah, that, that, that's quite a, quite a story that uh, both a, a husband and wife could find faculty employment at the same institution. Yeah, especially when you're tossing the stone into the pool, which is as big as a, a continent. Yeah. Um, and actually, when you, when you meet scientists, there's actually quite a few couple scientists. So uh, it might seem like a daunting task to get two jobs, but actually it's, 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 it's uh, quite a few people manage to work it out. So I'm, I, I want to point that out as a note of encouragement for other people who are looking for this two-body problem, it's called. The two-body problem. <laughs> it's funny to uh, express that in kind of scientific terms. Uh, well, that's neat. It's great that that worked out for you, and you have a small child as well. Yeah, that's right, and um, this this area is really great for families. Indeed. Well, uh, Graham, after your many educational experiences, what has led you to specialize in the science of sleep? I've also uh, wondered about that myself. Why did I work on sleep? There's there's some very good reasons, but first of all, it it really is just mysterious and fascinating. It it has an allure. It has uh, there's some unknowns that are just very attractive as a scientist. Why do we sleep? What's happening when we go to sleep? Um, but from my postdoc uh, experience, I, I inherited a, a fascination with learning and memory from my mentor, Richard Huguenier at Johns Hopkins. He spent most of his career asking the question of, how do we learn? How do we make memories? And I'm coming at the sleep question also with that, that point of view. What is sleep doing for learning and memory? There's actually probably other many good questions to ask, but that's really the, the focus. Um, we know from our, our personal experiences and from lots of uh, science that Sleep is really critical for clear thinking, making memories. Uh, I certainly appreciate this fact. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm going to read you back a statement I came across when uh, researching for this and get you to kind of unpack it for us. Uh, you wrote, We are interested in understanding the molecular mechanisms of synaptic plasticity with a particular interest in sleep. Uh, like I say, let's let's unpack that a little bit. Particularly, what is synaptic plasticity? 
So synapses are the connections between nerve cells in the brain, and this is the structure that allows nerves to communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, every time we see a flash of light or hear a sound, this information is transmitted between the sensory organs through with the brain through these synapses. Uh, but it's also the way that nerve neurons in the brain store information. So when we learn something new, these synaptic connections uh, get bigger or stronger, or you can add new ones, or you can also prune them back, subtract them, make them weaker. And this pattern of weak synapses and strong synapses, which, which can change, is really what we believe as the, the substrate for learning and memory. This is how we encode and that's information. The that's the plasticity. The plasticity part is referring specifically to how you can have a synapse that's changing. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's relatively new thinking, isn't it? That that there is this plasticity. Uh, in the past, wasn't it uh, believed that that all that was a little bit more more fixed? I or think am I mixing things up here a little bit? It's it goes back to the seventies. Uh, so I think when we first discovered that you can measure a synapse uh, transmission and see it change, that that really back in the 70s, uh, that basically led to the idea that this could be the mechanism for learning and memory. But I think what's more and more surprising is to find out just how plastic the brain is. And also, we like to think of memory sometimes as being a writing on the wall or like a computer, you save the file and it's there forever. But actually, that process is very uh, adaptable and malleable uh, and more, more and more as we look into this. So how, how does synaptic plasticity influence sleep or, or is maybe vice versa the more more important question? So we think that uh, synaptic plasticity is really a mechanism for learning and we learn when we're awake. So there's dedicated types of synaptic plasticity that allow us to have uh, encode our experiences into memory. Um, what I've been moving into thinking is that there might actually be different kinds of synaptic plasticity that are specifically engaged during sleep. And this is a, a time when we can sort out all the different experiences we've had during the day. Um, the, the wheat from the chaff takes some memories, consolidate them into long-term memories, and other things actually have to be cleared away. And there is molecular basis for these uh, events. So that's, that's, that's the first part of the line that I wrote. We want to focus always on the molecules that allow these things to happen. I see. Well, uh, that brings us to uh, one of your your ma major uh, theses, which is uh, this thing called the sleep homeostasis hypothesis, or SHY. Uh, you've kind of laid the groundwork for us. Tell us about this major theory of sleep. So it actually starts from a scientist couple in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, Giulio Tononi and Chiara Sorelli. Uh, they were the first people to put forth this idea and have been champions of this idea since. Um, and I came at it from a different place, looking at how neurons adapt to different kinds of stimuli uh, by changing their synapses. If a neuron becomes hyper-excited, uh, it can actually tune down the strength of all of its synapses at the same time. Imagine a, a dimmer switch on the light. Um, and this seems to be not a way for neurons to store information, but really a way for them to control their excitability. This is something that we've been observing in the in the dish in culture neurons in vitro, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a really fascinating phenomenon. But it was really not clear when neurons would use this adaptation in a living brain. And the theory of 
the sleep homeostasis hypothesis suggested that this might be the time when neurons actually use this uh, this pathway that they have. So the, the the general idea is that when we're awake, we're having experiences constantly. Some of them is some of these are profound experiences that we remember. Some of them are trivial. But all of these things end up uh, being accumulated in our brain um, through strengthening of synapses. Basically, the, the amount of strengthening of synapses that happens in a day is finite. This can't go on forever. You have to have some kind of restorative process to offset this strengthening of synapses. And so the idea is that during sleep, synapses become broadly weaker, turning down the volume knob in the brain. Uh, and this resets synaptic strength back to some basal level. Mm -hmm. uh, and once you've restored synaptic strength back to this baseline, now we have a greater range for new synapse plasticity when we wake up. So we've renewed the capacity for learning. But also, um, we think this is really important for memory consolidation. So a lot of the experiences that we have in the day, they, you might imagine they clutter up the brain, uh, and you actually eliminate those, uh, those information to make space for new information. At this, uh, where I parked my car a couple days ago, I needed to remember that during the day, but I can't remember that now, and what I had for breakfast last week. Uh, but some of, the, some of those memories are consolidated for long term, and that's, that's still a, quite a mysterious process. Uh, but the idea is that this is some kind of a signal. Imagine those important memories, the other things are noise. And when you weaken synapses globally, you get a considerable boost in signal to noise, which we think is part of how memories are consolidated. It's, it's a fascinating theory, it really is. And it, potentially, it, it really does seem to explain a lot. Um, so the synapse, then, is, is really the physical basis of, of memory. Uh, the neuron, how many, how many synapses does a neuron typically have? Well, there's quite a few different flavors of neurons uh, in different brain areas, and, and they're devoted for different kinds of computation and different kinds of storage. But the, the area that I've been studying the most is the hippocampus and the cortex. These are the parts of the brain that are really important for learning and memory. Mm -hmm. And many of the, the principal neurons in the, those areas would have 10,000 or 100,000 synapses. Wow, okay. So there's a, there's a lot going on in there then. <laughs> um, I also read uh, that, that, that we have billions of neurons, and that translates out to quadrillions of synapses. Now, if you use the, the computer metaphor which I know only goes so far, uh, that's a very high-powered computer. Yeah, I think computer scientists and, and the folks working in artificial intelligence have, have still marveled at the power of the human brain, the, the informational capacity, the speed at which you can compute things, um, and also for a considerable small amount of energy compared to our electronic counterparts. Right. So uh, this... Uh, homeostasis theory. Um, the idea, I guess, is that synapses strengthen throughout the day as we accumulate experiences and are, are conscious, uh, and then weaken when you go to sleep. Uh, so what, what's going on there? I mean, I know you've, you've started to explain it, but why, why does this, our brain just naturally 
do this? Uh, and, and how are the memories extracted from all that? Or I guess I, I don't expect that you have the definitive answer to that question. Uh, that's kind of the bottom line of what you're looking at, Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lots of work to do still and um, plenty of controversy, too. Besides, I, I don't mind saying now that this, this hypothesis is not uh, dogma, yet it's still uh, debated. Um, mm -hmm. um, so also, we know that learning can also occur through synapse weakening, uh, but... The, the, the hypothesis and plenty of evidence suggests that the major way that we learn is by strengthening. So the net effect of ex having experiences is strengthening. Um, so the weakening of synapses during sleep is, is a necessary consequence of having a flexible, adaptable brain that can code information. You simply need to have a time of restoration to offset this, um, this plasticity. It's, mm -hmm. it's also sometimes called the plasticity stability dilemma. How can you have an organ like a brain that's so dynamic and flexible, and yet we're relying on this organ to store information and guide our behaviors for the long term? Um, so you have to have this, this balance. Um, and why, why sleep? Why during sleep? Um, there's a couple of different ideas. Um, but one reason, one idea I have is that at the cellular level, at the biochemical level, our brains are maximizing the capacity for learning when we're awake so that we're ready to encounter any kind of experiences that might be important. But in order to weaken those synapses, to restore them back to their baseline, you actually have to disassemble part of this machinery that allows us to have learning. And so it's beneficial that this should happen when we're asleep. We're not engaged with the environment. We're not expecting uh, new experiences that we have to uh, encode at that moment. And so it's a time when you can... Uh, disassemble the learning machinery, and then uh, allow this rec restorative process to occur. I see. Uh, another very good, uh, compelling idea, which is the competing hypothesis for this homeostasis hypothesis, is that when we're asleep, uh, there's something very important about being unconscious. When we're awake, all the different parts of the brain are computing different types of information, visual information, spatial information, We've, we've heard over uh, many times that there's different regions of the brains that compute faces and have emotions, things like that. And basically when we're awake, all these different parts of the brain are too busy doing their job, their day job, to talk to each other. And when we're unconscious, we're disengaged from our sensory inputs. And that's actually a time when all the different parts of the brain can actually communicate with each other. There's these patterns of electrical activity that allow the brain to become synchronized. And this actually allow information to be transferred between different brain areas. Um, and this will allow us to actually assemble memories, which have different components, sensory components and emotional components. And it's only when you're unconscious that you can actually put these together in a lasting form. And there are different areas of the brain devoted to long-term memory and short-term memory, right? Yeah, that's, that's partly true. Um, it's still a bit mysterious. There's, we, there's parts of the brain which we call fast learners, like the hippocampus and perhaps the, the cortex, which is the biggest part in the human brain and in all mammals actually, is a slow learner. But it might be that the, what the hippocampus is very good at is taking a picture, uh, taking a very quick assembly of all the things that are happening, whereas the cortex is learning everything in pieces. And so it's maybe not a short-term memory, long-term memory thing, but how, how the different brain areas are how good are they at assembling things into a cohesive whole? 
we know that the hippocampus is really important to form memories when we're awake, but it's probably that the cortex is really important to store those memories for long term. And so again, during sleep, this is a time when parts of the brain like the hippocampus and cortex can talk to each other and allow those uh, um, assembly of memories or perhaps transference of memory from the one site of storage, the hippocampus, into the cortex. I see. Okay. Well, Graham, the, the con- this concept of synapse scaling down during sleep, it's, it's really fascinating. Is the dysfunction of that scaling down possibly an element of psychiatric disorders? Uh, schizophrenia comes to mind. Uh, absolutely. Um, right now, I'd say it's still in the realm of theory. We mm-hmm. don't have some very obvious demonstration of here's a disease case where s- this homeostatic scaling is defective, therefore you have the disease. Okay. But we can imagine what would happen if this process was was broken. If, um, if the synaptic strength that accumulates as we have experienced and learned could not be offset then you would have a situation where the synapses would continue to strengthen until they perhaps hit some kind of a ceiling. You try and turn up the, the dimmer light to maximum. Once it's there, you cannot go any higher. And so you would have a hard time incorporating new information when the synapses are already strengthened. So that could uh, cause problems with learning and memory. You can also imagine that this could also drive uh, inflexible behaviors, obsessive compulsive type behaviors. You, once you've got some pattern of behavior established, you cannot, uh, you can't reset that process and, and be flexible. Um, also, a lot of problems of the brain are problems of excitability of neurons, ex- uh, electrical activity that just cannot be contained. Mm-hmm. So, if the synapses continue to get stronger and can't be uh, balanced, you can end up with a situation where there's too much activity in the brain leading to things like epilepsy and seizures. Sure. Um, and a lot of... What uh, about a- autism spectrum disorders? Is, is that re- potentially related? Because yeah. I know a lot of autistic folks have sleep disorders as well, don't they? Yeah, that's right. Um, that's the area that I specifically want to focus on in my own lab. Mm-hmm. Um, so folks with autism, a lot of them have problems with sleep uh, uh, there's, it's a spectrum. So you have high-functioning people and lower-functioning people, and the problems with sleep can also be mild, but also sometimes very severe. Some of the kids just cannot sleep. Yeah, uh, and it's not just for autism. If you, that's the area that I want to focus on. But if we start asking about what's the role of this homeostasis of synapses during sleep and the role of sleep in health, uh, s- sleep disruption is seen actually in a lot of diseases of the brain. Uh, traumatic injuries and stroke, Alzheimer's disease, but also the neurodevelopmental disorders, autism, schizophrenia. Okay. Uh, well, Graham, how do the various stages of sleep fit into this scenario? Yeah, so it's it's a it's an area that's still you still work highly on studied. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the two main stages in, in sleep that probably most folks have heard of before is the rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep, and then mm-hmm. we call non-REM sleep or slow-wave sleep. Um, what are the functions of each? It's, it's debated. Um, in fact, when REM sleep was first discovered in the 50s, it was at first thought to be something unique to humans. Only humans have this special kind of sleep. And so that gave REM sleep uh, an aura of... Now, anybody who's, and anybody who's ever had a dog knows better than that. They right. Just, they, they dream 
quite obviously. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, now we know very well that you see REM sleep in all mammals, Mm -hmm. in birds, and more recently uh, in reptiles. So it's probably something that's conserved and ancient. Sure. Um, So still the question is, what's it for? Um, My view on the matter, which is is there's still work to be done, is that the non-REM sleep, that takes up the major part of our sleep time. And it's also when you first go to sleep, this is the major, uh, dominates the earlier part of sleep. Um, I see this as a much more of the restorative part of sleep. Part of this, uh, it's a time when we're um, recovering health of the brain and resetting things to sort of baseline levels. Also, when you're sleep deprived, this non-REM sleep is, is the type that really dominates We've all had this experience when we're up late and we're very tired. You have this very, very deep sleep afterwards if you're Mm -hmm. lucky enough to go have a quiet place. And then it's the non-REM sleep that dominates. Um, The REM sleep I see as a more informational type. It's a time when we're not, it's not about maintaining the health of the brain, but our file keeping, sorting out our experiences and information. And this is also the time that's really associated with dreaming. Yeah, I have questions prepared about that, but I want to stay on this uh, issue of sleep deprivation uh, for now. What is what is the impact? Do you think of sleep deprivation? Uh, It seems like you know even one night without sleep, uh, or even shortened sleep, uh, can really have some very profound physiological effects. Uh, And it seems like those effects have become more widely recognized, uh, you know, it certainly seems to be accepted as a form of torture, even. Yeah, I think it's a topic that's getting uh, more attention now, and rightly so. So, as you said, we all have uh, this experience of one night without sleep or one night of restless sleep. You have immediate impacts on how you feel the next day. Uh, There's impacts on your ability to think clearly, your ability to recall information, also emotional control, Uh, You get irritable. Uh, These are all things that we know, and these are also things that have been uh, studied in science. But what's the long-term impact of sleep deprivation? These are something, things that are much more serious and um, still work to be done, but there's uh, impacts on our metabolism. Uh, Things, poor sleep can drive obesity or diabetes, perhaps. Um, Yeah. uh, impacts on our immune system mm-hmm. and also the health of the brain. Uh, bad sleep for, or I shouldn't say bad sleep, loss of sleep or disrupted sleep for long periods could perhaps sensitize us to to a- diseases of aging, Alzheimer's disease, for example. Sure. Well, uh, plenty of grist for the mill for you as as things go forward. Uh, well, Graham, how how does the the theory you, you're expounding uh, contradict? past conventional wisdom that uh, would hold that sleep allows the brain to clear out the cellular waste that has accumulated uh, during the day. Uh, Is there any validity to that in your estimation, or is that kind of outmoded thinking at this point? Yeah, that's been one of the most uh, exciting uh, advances in sleep medicine or sleep science in the recent years. And I don't see that that my idea about synapses and information contradicts this other theory. Okay. Um, when we look at, when we can ask the question, why do we sleep? What's the function of sleep? This is actually a good question that we're still working on. But I don't believe that it's such a simple answer. There's not just one function for sleep. And one reason why I say this is if you look at 
evolution, uh, we can see that all animals sleep, uh, even going down to something like a soil worm, the nematode. Um, and it's probable that there's an ancient function, a, a highly conserved function of sleep. But as animals became more complex, we've added on additional functions. Like I think of it like the Swiss Army knife. And so I'm really focusing on this learning and memory component of sleep, which is really important for uh, animals like humans, but maybe not so important for the soil uh, nematodes or for jellyfish, which also sleep. Um, so I see these as there's parallel uh, functions happening. One is what I'm interested in learning and memory, controlling uh, flexibility of the brain. But this other more recent theory, uh, which is now been demonstrated and, and is really interesting, is that sleep is a time when we clear out the metabolic waste of the brain. There's a sort of washing of the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, the brain is bathed in its own juice called the cerebral spinal fluid. It's separated from the blood by the blood-brain barrier. Um, but when we're awake, somehow the, the flow of this fluid is, is impaired, uh, perhaps because we have to maintain those strong connections between the nerve cells. But when you go to sleep, some of these connections between cells uh, retract, and also there's the non-neuron cells, the astrocytes, they also retract, and this allows a greater flow of this juice, uh, the cerebral spinal fluid throughout the brain, washing away the metabolites that build up over a day. And so um, I don't see this as, as such a day-to-day -day function controlling our learning and memory or behaviors, but more about a long-term maintenance of the health of the organ. I see. So two parallel functions, perhaps several others. Sure. Well, one thing I was curious about, uh, Graham, was how, how do you think the brain is able to distinguish the memories worth keeping from those that are expendable uh, as synaptic homeostasis is restored by sleep? So I don't have the answer. Um, Come on. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it's really, that's really where we have to go from now. If, if the Simmons homeostasis hypothesis is right, this can explain the renewal of our ability to, to learn, and it can explain uh, some parts of memory consolidation, but it's not the whole picture. There must be some other way, or there's additional things happening. How does your brain sort out important things from non-important things? Um, again, as I was mentioning earlier, this, I think this... Addressing this, how does the brain sort out different information specifically would require that we go unconscious. Uh, the brain's busy during sleep. It's just not engaged in behavior. So this is a time when we can actually sample all of our experiences and decide which things are important, which things are not. And there's a couple of ways that we know uh, allow things to be consolidated into long-term memory. Uh, one thing is how well do the, do the information we take in during the day incorporate with things that we already know? So if, if I give you some uh, nonsense list of words to memorize, you have a hard time. Uh, but if I give you a list of words that's meaningful to you, something about radio shows, you m you'll have a much easier time incorporating this. So again, during, s during sleep, you can, you can sample those new experiences and see how well they fit in with what you already know and, as and assemble them into your previous body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Another way that things get promoted, say, from trivial to important is if it, if it has particular uh, relevance or valence to you or if something profound happens, something that you never expected that really drives a strong emotional reaction. Um, this could be something nice, like you win the lottery, or it might be something not nice, like there was a car accident. 
those those things that are charged with emotional power also get promoted to the status of of relevance and get consolidated quickly into long-term memory. Absolutely. Well, it's it's interesting also that there are are some people who have remarkable powers of memory. Uh, who can you know actors who can look at a script one time and have it memorized, uh, and they are they're out there. And uh, one of my relatives, as a matter of fact, can tell you you know ten years ago what restaurant he went to, where he sat, and what he ordered. And boom, just like without hesitation. Uh, so it's the the range is is just remarkable. Uh, you are listening to Radio and Vivo, and my guest today, Dr. Graham Deering from UNC Chapel Hill. Graham, um, I want to ask you, how are you able to experimentally explore these questions to gather evidence for your model, which, as you mentioned, is still controversial? So I'm studying um, mice, sleep in mice. So if you've I, I don't suppose I could claim myself to be a sleep expert for humans. I, if anything, I'm a sleep expert for mice. But we like to think that this is very relevant for humans. Uh, this is a behavior that, like I said, that's conserved throughout all of biology, mm-hmm. all of animals anyway. Um, and the, the sleep that we see in mice is very similar to what we see in humans. They have REM sleep. They have the slow-wave sleep. Um, so th- one of the main ways that I've been approaching this is from a molecular point of view, like I said. So we can study the behavior of the mice. We can look at when they sleep, how they sleep, but we want to know what's changing in the brain between wake and sleep. So we've done quite a bit of biochemistry experiments, proteomics experiments, which is a way to measure protein levels. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the main workhorse for my previous work and for my lab is, to, is we have biochemical methods to actually purify synapses uh, from tissue. And so when I did this from mice that were awake and mice that were asleep, I found remarkable changes uh, in the synapse composition between those two states. Um, it's really actually amazing that the majority of synapses show changes to huge parts of their composition every day. Um, so now that we've made these observations, all these different molecules that are upregulated during wake or during sleep, we have what I call a parts list. These are all the things that are changing between wake and sleep. But now what we want to really drive at is what's the mechanism? What's, what are the things that are making these processes happen? And I think that's actually where we potentially have the best uh, potential for new medicine. So we haven't talked about sleep pills yet, but what we would like to have in the medicine is to really understand what's changing in your brain when you go to sleep. And now we could, if we have, if we know the mechanism for what's driving those processes, we can start to enhance that uh, in people who can't, or have trouble sleeping or different kind of diseases. Sure. Well, I know that you've, you've sought a molecular trigger uh, associated with, with sleep or, or, non, uh, or wakefulness. Uh, tell us about this Homer 1A protein which uh, stood out to you experimentally. Right. So I, I mentioned briefly that before I was working on sleep, I was studying this process of homeostatic scaling in cultured neurons. So mm-hmm. these are neurons that are in the dish. Um, and when we hyperexcite those neurons, we see that they adapt by weakening their synapses in a global manner. Um, 
So I, I did some experiments to look at the molecular mechanisms that drive this, and this has been work that's been going on for about 20 years now. So there's quite a bit of uh, papers and a, quite a bit of mechanisms that have been demonstrated in these neurons in the dish to drive this process of scaling down. Um, I didn't do the work on Homer 1A for that, uh, the dish work. That was actually our neighbors at Johns Hopkins that, that did that. Um, but my observations that uh, I made in the changes at synapses during sleep were very similar to what I saw in the dish. And that really um, drove me to this idea that this scaling down that we saw in the dish is the same phenomenon that we see during sleep. And so uh, what I wanted to do was to, s to demonstrate that the same me mechanisms, the same molecules that drive this process in the dish were happening in, in sleep. Mm -hmm. And so indeed, in, if we have uh, neurons in the dish that don't have this protein HOMER 1A, they cannot adapt by weakening their synapses through this homeostatic scaling. And in the, in the mouse that doesn't have HOMER 1A, they also cannot adapt the strength of synapses during sleep. So you developed uh, HOMER 1A knockout mice for your experiments, right? Uh, they were actually developed by our collaborator, Paul Worley, at Johns Hopkins. Okay. Mm -hmm. yep. And then so he was kind enough to share that for this study. And so I was uh, the first one to study this. Well, not the first one to study the knockout in first sleep, but really at this biochemical level. Actually, I'll also mention that um, Homer 1A has already been linked genetically with sleep. So when people are sleep-deprived, you start to get tired, and then when you're allowed to go back to sleep, you have this recovery sleep. Oftentimes you get a much deeper sleep. Some people um, accumulate sleep need more than others, and they, they get more tired or they have the, a deeper sleep after sleep deprivation. Some people still have a light sleep after sleep deprivation. And this is also seen in mice. You've got your black mouse and your brown mouse and your white mouse. Some of them show differences in their recovery sleep. And this uh, was mapped to this Homer 1A protein. I see. So, but the, the, the Hummer 1A knockout mice that you've looked at, uh, if I understand it correctly, slept normally, but their synapses didn't change their proteins like the ones in ordinary mice. So it, it appeared that uh, the, the homeostasis was disturbed. That's right. So I think of this process, this homeostasis process, it's not a thing that controls sleep. And the Homer 1A protein doesn't control sleep, but it's part of the output of sleep. I see. Um, sleep is controlled through both circadian mechanisms and what we also call homeostatic processes. So there's parts of your brain that are dedicated for knowing what time of day it is, and they inform the other parts, okay, it's nighttime. That'll start to ramp up the sleep machinery, but also there's a buildup of sleep need when we're awake. The longer you've been awake, the more tired you get, or the more busy you've been uh, mentally during wake, you also get more sleep need. And this is where Homer 1A comes in, I believe. So it's, it's part of a group of proteins called immediate early genes. So cell, uh, neurons are made out of proteins. They always have to make new proteins, but there's a set that's specifically activated when we're learning, when we learn new things. Um, we have some experience, and immediately you get this generation of this set of proteins. Some of those immediate early genes have a job right away to help consolidate that new memory. But Homer 1A, what I believe is it's, it, it actually builds up as a sensor of how much sleep we need. Uh, and as, as it builds up, in specific areas of the brain that were busy during, during wake, those, those parts of the brain and also those individual cells will now get 
the benefit of re the restorative process of this homeostatic scaling during sleep. I see. Okay. Well, uh, have you had an, any opportunity to collect any human measurements, uh, such as working with the sleep lab, for example? Uh, n not yet, um, but that's definitely something I'd be very interested to, to pursue, um, especially uh, in our genomic era. There's so much wealth of information coming from uh, genome sequencing studies, and I think there's a lot of uh, room there still to understand the genetic basis of sleep behaviors in humans. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly some of that work's ongoing, but um, I think it's taken second seat to um, understanding the genes that drive Alzheimer's or autism, for example. Sure. Uh, have you done in, any uh, imaging? Right. So um, with our colleagues, uh, I, I'm a, I have a biochemistry background, so my, I have done the imaging myself, but it's, it's of a limited nature perhaps. Um, but one of my close colleagues when I was a postdoc, uh, Richard Roth, he actually was a really great imaging expert. And so together with him, we developed a study where we had actually um, deliver fluorescently tagged proteins into the brain of the mice, and we could study how they behaved in the, in the same mice between wake and sleep uh, through a, uh, actually a window. And specifically, we're looking at um, neurotransmitter receptors. It's called the AMP receptor. Uh, so this is one of the proteins that really decides how strong a synapse is. More AMP receptor means a stronger synapse, less AMP receptor means a weaker synapse. And we could actually see between wake and sleep that there was a, a loss of these AMP receptors at synapses during sleep. Okay. Um, which, which matched nicely the biochemistry data and also very strongly supported this sleep homeostasis hypothesis. Excellent. Um, let me add actually another point that in the same uh, issue where my sleep study was published, the, uh, another paper was published at the same time from Chiara Cerelli and Julia Chenery at Madison, Wisconsin. They actually used electron microscopy to study sleep. So this is a very old school method, slow and laborious, but they very painstakingly uh, measured synapses in their dimensions, uh, the, the ultra structure of synapses in the cortex of mice that were awake and during sleep, and they could show very clearly that there was a physical shrinking of the structure of synapses during sleep. So not only is there a change in the biochemical composition, but also in the, in the, the structure. I see, very good. Uh, well, Graham, I, I wanted to also ask you about the potential impact of aging. Uh, and, and I know that there's that kind of goes both ways. There's impact of aging and the impact of, of youth uh, where our brains are still developing. Can you tell us a little bit about your thinking on both of those fronts? Right. So actually those are both areas that I'm actively interested in pursuing. Okay. I think um, this discussion about this homeostatic function of sleep might be very important in adulthood. So maybe during development when the brain is still being formed there actually might be other functions of sleep that are that are unique to allowing the development of the brain. Mm -hmm. And as we approach adulthood, this homeostatic function really has to come online. There might be then, if this process is disrupted, either sleep is disrupted or this restorative process of sleep is disrupted, that's when we might start to see some neurodevelopmental conditions emerging. Um, but also, as we were discussing, this, this, is really, this homeostatic function is really important to maintain the flexibility and health of the brain. And so what happens during aging if, if sleep is disrupted? Uh, we see very clearly that the amount of sleep and the nature of sleep changes very steadily throughout development. 
uh, young young children and babies sleep a lot, and they sleep really deeply. In fact, the sleeping child is a, one of the most cherished icons of peace and repose in our society. Um, but sleep, in most folks, shows a pretty steady decline throughout throughout life. Uh, you start to get less and less sleep as you get older. And what's the impact of this? Um, we still don't really know, but it, it might be that loss of sleep in for, for many years in later life could, could predispose us for eventual uh, decline of cognitive abilities or, or health, brain health. Well, what about the uh, variability in peop- individuals' need for sleep? Uh, you know, some people can get by just fine on very little sleep. Uh, our, our current president comes to mind as someone who can seems to get by on fine as, well, maybe or maybe not, uh, but uh, on just a few hours of sleep a night. Uh, most people cannot. Is that a genetic variability or, or is something else at work? Yeah, uh, politics aside, it's, um, it is, it's a good question. How much sleep do we need? And that actually, I'm, I'm sure, is an individual question. Uh, and there probably is genetic components for this. Also, lifestyle components, maybe your occupation, but different types might require more or less sleep for this restorative process. Um, the genetic basis is still not understood, but I think, yeah, it's clear that different people need different amounts of sleep. But how much sleep do we need? Uh, I think the consensus pretty pretty solidly at seven to eight hours for your healthy adult. Mm -hmm. Some people maybe need less, but I think um, how much we need is it's probably more than you think. Yeah. So most people could say, oh, I'm, I'm fine. I manage fine with a, with less, but maybe at a cost. Yeah. Cause uh, some of those people that are, are kind of chronically sleep deprived that ends up uh, potentially uh, underlying serious illness later in life in that there's, there's evidence that that's what the evidence would suggest it's still uh not a definitive cause uh, but mm-hmm. you, you uh, we would use the word that sleep deprivation or sleep disruption would predispose one for developing uh dementia but I perhaps see. not causative mm-hmm. uh directly causative or or even metabolic disorders or immunologic, as you mentioned. Um, Well, Graham, this question probably goes beyond the bounds of science, but I feel compelled to ask you, as a sleep expert, your opinion about the role of dreaming. It's a a fascinating topic. Um, I think it's probably charged the minds of philosophers going back to the beginning of time. Uh, Still mysterious, still exciting as a scientist. My view of it is that it's, as strange as it seems, it's a kind of informational processing. Um, When you're asleep, you can sample all the different information that's stored in your brain, uh, which is allowed by being unconscious. And so you can try to take your new incoming information and try and incorporate it into the previous existing knowledge. I think this is what dreaming is for. We kind of open up the old filing cabinets to see uh, how the new information might fit. And the experience of this is that you end up assembling seemingly uh, all different disparate parts of our lives together in one big mishmash. Uh, sometimes can be pretty uh, wild. But um, oftentimes people would 
experience that their dreams would be very relevant for their most recent experiences. So I think this makes a lot of sense. Sure. Well, you know, uh, some people claim they never dream, uh, or at least they never remember their dreams, uh, while others, myself included, dream quite extensively and typically remember multiple sequences every night and morning. Uh, is there, do you think, a, a physiologic or neurological basis for dreaming? Well, what you just said about not remembering, I think there is a basis for that. Uh, I think it's very important that the brain can sort out real experiences from imagined experiences. Um, so dreaming might be a very important part of sorting out the different information that we've taken in, but it's very important that we don't confuse those dreams with real experiences. And so I think... Sometimes that can be a challenge. <laughs> right, and and it could potentially lead to some big problems, too, if, yeah. if people start to confuse dreams and reality. Indeed. Um, but I think the... F you, you might, some people, myself also included, I remember having, having dreamt. And immediately after waking, you might recall all kinds of details. But the, the details tend to fade very quickly. Yeah. Maybe some of the, the, the gist of the dream might remain. But mostly all the details fade away. And I think this is in Mysterious. Um, as I was mentioning earlier, the, the actual machinery that allows memories to form might actually be disassembled during sleep, partly to allow this restorative process and partly to prevent learning from occurring from false experiences or imagined experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a, yeah, there's a physiological basis for not remembering dreams long term. Interesting. Well, it'll be interesting to see where the, where the science goes on all of that. Um, yeah, I'll add it's all perfectly debatable and lots of work to do. So Right. Well, Graham, it would, it would seem that this research would be the first step in developing uh, drug or even genetic therapies that could restore cognitive function in patients with uh, autism spectrum disorders, for example, by uh, enabling the scaling down in the brain uh, that you've talked about and the restorative function uh, of sleep. Are you pursuing any translational possibilities like that to emerge from your uh, your work? Right. That's that's really the the big thrust of my of my own lab. Okay. Good. We want to understand what sleep does at the molecular level, and this will allow us to develop new therapies. So we already have medicine that can help us go to sleep or stay asleep. But what about the restorative part of sleep? Once we go to sleep, what's happening? And how do we make that in improved? Um, we couldn't really answer that question until we've got this parts list that I was describing. Mm -hmm. And now we can really start to hammer at this parts list, uh, assemble it into some mechanisms, and develop some new therapies. So you, you are working on, on that type of thing? Yeah. Or, or plan to, at least. I plan to. It's, it's early days, so yeah. uh, there, it might take a while. But... but um, the, the potential of sleep medicine is, I think, really starting to really emerge. It's not just a problem for insomniac people. Uh, mm -hmm. sleep, sleep quality is, is part of health, healthy life and can be associated with lots of different diseases. So I think even if sleep disruption might not cause different kind of conditions, if we can uh, maximize the restorative parts of sleep, we can, we can 
get a lot of benefit from a lot of people. So where, what are the big questions uh, remaining to be answered in your field? Uh, I know there are a bunch of them. Uh, what, what are the ones you want to focus on? Well, the one specific question that I'm quite focused on now is what does sleep do at different stages of life? We spend a lot of time talking about this homeostasis function of sleep, which I think is once you have an adult brain that's fully wired and set up, you need to have this on uh, continuous restorative process just to keep flexibility in the brain. But when the brain is developing um, and you're just forming these new connections and circuits that allow us to have uh, behaviors, perhaps sleep is doing something different, um, really helping to promote the development of the brain. Um, and this is something that is not not clearly known. I see. And and it, and it just anecdotally, if if you watch a child sleeping, they they sleep differently than adults. They sleep so profoundly and deeply and beautifully. It's uh, yeah. it's a wonderful thing to behold. And I, I really think that there's something different happening there. Okay. That also leads to the question of. What does sleep disruption uh, in early life do to the development of the brain? And so I'm also interested in this hypothesis that perhaps there are sensitive, very sensitive periods of brain development, and if you don't have sleep quality sleep during those times, this might actually lead to lasting changes uh, leading to neurodevelopmental conditions like autism. Well, it will be very interesting to follow your work through the years and see where it goes in in uh, really characterizing what sleep is all about what it's for and uh, how we benefit from it well graham you're doing some groundbreaking work in an area of science that really has not received enough research attention so i thank you for joining me today on radio in vivo and wish you the best of luck for continued success thank you ernie it's been a pleasure we've got some great guests lined up here in the coming weeks on radio in vivo you can check out the website, radioinvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio in Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on Volunteer Power, WCOM-FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy this show, we ask that you support the station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time.